to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Palm Sunday, and we looked this morning at an event that takes place in all four Gospels. We will look at the Gospel of John and John's account of this powerful event. John writes for us, God speaks. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. You may be seated. Let us pray. Our Father, in this passage, Jesus does not say any word audibly. And yet, clearly, he speaks to us of false expectations and right ones that he might have for us. Would you encourage the weak, challenge the prideful, give us all the word that we can take to heart. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. In the Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo and his companions arrive at the prancing pony, armed with a prophecy, the prophecy that says, all that is gold does not glitter. Not all who wander are lost. And as the events take place that night there, Frodo looks face to face with the one who is prophesied, Aragorn or Strider, the ranger, but not what Frodo expected, didn't meet up to his expectations initially, at least, because all that is gold does not glitter. In the same way, the passage this morning points us to false expectations that many, including us, might have had, might have of Jesus himself. The one who comes to Jerusalem comes riding in. And maybe we should have expected it because in the past, the forerunner of Jesus, King David, the eighth son, overlooked and overlooked. Surely not him, surely not him, surely not him. And yet it is, false expectations. Jesus himself prophesied in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant that we might not even want to look at was said of him. What would they have expected on that Palm Sunday? What should they have expected? What do we expect of Jesus this morning? Should we even ask that? Is that okay to ask that? And what does he expect of us? The big idea this morning is that our expectations of Christ can expose idols in our heart 
and our expectations of Christ must submit to his expectation of us. What does John want us to get from this passage? I invite you to hold your Bibles open to John 12 if you have one. Uh, Also, there's an outline in the bulletin that you can follow along. This is a passage not like Romans where we have truth, 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 but rather a narrative. And it's been said that narratives drive culture. Narratives drive culture. So we have a powerful one before us. So to set the the context for this, the slide here shows um, the, the geography. Jesus is starting in Bethany where he has raised Lazarus from the dead, then been anointed by Mary, and then he leaves Bethany, goes to Bethphage and gets the donkey, the foal of the donkey as well. Other Gospels tells us there are two of them. Then he comes along the Mount of Olives, the eastern part of the Mount of Olives, down over the brook Kidron and into Jerusalem. As far as scale goes, this is really not that big of a distance, a relatively short uh, amount to travel. A good pitcher could make the throw with three or four good throws from city to city. So really not too far, and hence why the, the walk that he takes could be covered in palms. So let's look at the passage now on this slide, and we'll look at a couple of the key terms to kind of help us uh, understand what was being experienced here. The next day, that being after the anointing by Mary, after he had raised Lazarus, a large crowd came. After all, if you want a large crowd, raise somebody from the dead. That's going to be a pretty safe way to get a lot of attention. The historian Josephus said there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem. Many call him uh, an exaggerator. That might be a bit large. But others land in the 50 to couple hundred thousand people. So there were a lot of people in Jerusalem this day. Why? Mention of the feast. Now, which, which one? Uh, the Israelites would come to Jerusalem for one of three feasts, if not at other times. The first being the Passover, 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost, and then at the end of the year, the celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, where they would celebrate God's giving them a good harvest. This one they were gathered for was the Feast of the Passover, and that's why Jesus is coming as well. So a large number of people gathered here, and they were waving what we had earlier, the palm branch, The palm branch was quite a sign, an important one, signifying multiple, multiple things. They lined the path from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem with these palms. The biggest thing was it was a symbol of Israel's sovereign identity. That was the symbol of their nation, the palm branch. It was a symbol of blessing. Years back when they had traveled around as nomads and in their tabernacles, their booths, their tents, made up of twigs of myrtle and willow and palm. They could look back on that with thanks for God having delivered them through that. It was a sign of peace and joy, but also of victory 
And here we see the slant that may have been going on there. 170 years ago, or 170 years prior to Palm Sunday, Simon Maccabeus had led a revolt for on the behalf of the Jews to retake Jerusalem. So when they had retaken Jerusalem, he and the army marched in with palm branches. And hence a sign of their military victory and one that would show up on coins for years and years to come because of their victory. Much like the American flag for us of our identity as a sovereign nation. And these palm branches, if you look throughout scripture, I mean, they show up throughout and they will show up again in Revelation being waved before Jesus on the throne. So they have a, a good symbolic side to them as well as the questionable side here where some of them are waving them for questionable reasons and we'll see more of that as we go. Does it, does it matter? Does it matter if the people's hearts were in it as they're waving these palm branches? Does it, does it matter? Are, when the children were up here singing, I mean, it made me smile seeing little Jenna just singing and waving around and the joy in her heart. Surely, goodness. But what of the others? There were surely some in the crowd waving the palms for other reasons that we'll see about. Does it matter for us in our worship? Is my heart in it? I don't like this song. I'm not going to, I don't wish they didn't do it this way. I'm going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. Maybe we can look in our own hearts as we, in effect, wave our palm branches. Hosanna. Hosanna. Save us. Save us now. Save us now. In the Hebrew, that's an imperative. Save us now. Hmm. In Psalm 118, where this came from, there had been an attempt to overthrow David. But he asserts himself as a rightful king. And they sing this in victory, in thanksgiving. Why do they sing this now? Because the people are feeling the king has come. Save us now. Save us from what? Maybe like our hail to the chief for the president. Interesting note that now the campaigns for our presidencies that many years in the past would be for several months. Now we're seeing in 2020 campaigns that last literally for years. The campaigns. Because our president, he'll save us now. Was it the themes of conservatism, nationalism, social justice, liberal cause, this, that. Save us now, president. Hmm. So if we look now in the middle of this passage, the fear not, daughter of Zion. We'll look at the next slide. Because where, where is that coming from? Why did John include that? When he put that little piece in there from Zechariah 9, he actually wants the audience to go back and look at more than just that. And there were multiple Old Testament prophecies, if we could go to the next slide, that pointed to this. Way back in Genesis, Jacob, when he's blessing his sons, 
he has this mention of a donkey's colt and a choice vine. Zechariah 9, fear not, daughter of Zion. But then it goes off to that part there. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And then in Daniel 9, another reference to the being cut off. And in Daniel 9, some would say that prophecy in Daniel, some match it to the day that Jesus comes in to Jerusalem. These prophecies were mile markers, signposts saying, all that glitters or all that is gold does not glitter. Here's your sign. Here's the one. Look for this. This will help you. Be ready. Telegraphing what would be coming. In the next slide, here's a, an image that to me is a powerful one. Many years ago, this is my, my favorite of the 14ers in Colorado. Long's Peak, massive mountain. And what you see here is the boulder field coming up. And then the keyhole. And on the left of the keyhole, you can't quite see it, but there's a tomb. A tomb for someone who was at the keyhole at a bad time and got caught by weather when you don't want to be there. But the point of this is, I did this one many, many years ago. I don't know if I'll ever do it again. My, my, my children, they've done a lot with me. I don't know if I'll be there with them to do this one again. But this is their prophecy. This is their sign. Do not miss the keyhole. If you don't go through the keyhole, I don't know how you're getting around the other side where it gets quite dicey, but that's the way you got to go to get to the peak. So that's their prophecy to remember in the future, that's your path, that's your way. Don't lose sight of it. Don't forget it. That's the way to go. So the value of the prophecies were, hey, it helps us to know what to look for. Here's the king. He's coming. And then we can look back and see, oh, look, they were fulfilled. Not just say, oh, oh, that's cool. They were fulfilled. But as much as anything to say, because they were fulfilled, I can trust in what else is said. I can trust in scripture. I can trust in my Savior that what he has said is true. So our king makes his entrance into Jerusalem. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, makes his entrance. Probably a pretty elaborate ceremony, wouldn't you think? If you look at this slide, back in the, the most expensive event in the history of the world, 2014, Sochi Winter Olympics, $50 billion spent on the pageantry in everything around the Winter Olympics, to celebrate that, to magnify that. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, enters into Jerusalem. The pageantry, humility, on a donkey. And not just a donkey, the foal of a donkey, the other gospel tells us. Jesus is so compassionate that he wouldn't just take the donkey from the mother, he brings them together riding on the little donkey. Unlike the great kings of the world, even at that time, Caesar Augustus, who is reigning, who kills off his relatives, amasses an army, pay taxes, give him wealth. 
Jesus on a little donkey. Not like the kings to come, riding on war horses. See the comparison here? Jesus coming on a donkey. Over here, one of the greatest kings to come, Bucephalus, was the horse of Alexander the Great. A horse so mighty, so fearsome, legends say that only he could tame it and ride it. The war horse, surely that's what the king would come in to ride. But no, Jesus, as he comes up onto the Mount of Olives, looks down on the city, gets on the foal of the donkey. Now just to get an image of what that might have looked, looked like, the Mount of Olives, a relatively simple mountain. Don't think the, uh, the rocky peaks of the, uh, the Alps. Think more King's Mountain over in Gastonia. But that's what he's coming down. Down the path here, they line it with the palm branches as he descends into Jerusalem. But amidst all that humility, he knows what he's doing. Previously, he had avoided the crowd. Now he comes to them. He had told others to be silent. Now he allows the cheering. He had been the one to embrace life to the fullest. Now he accepts death. He will force the hands of the authorities. It is time he mounts and rides to die. The prophecies of many years have come to light, ones to fulfill. He will not put up a fight, aware that soon his journey will be completed and his enemies will be defeated. But that will take at least another week. For now, there's no turning back. He rides on to die. The people would have offered him a war horse. He rejects that offer of war. On Good Friday... They reject his offer of peace. But now let's look a bit more at the reaction of the three characters that are there in the passage. The first, the disciples. What were their expectations for good or for not? Let's look at the disciples. In a sense, they got it wrong, we could say. They were, in a sense, saying, Jesus let me put my arm around you. I, I've got a wonderful plan for your life, Jesus. You could, you could really win big here. Don't, don't go mess this up. You have a chance to win. Had Jesus maybe become a bit too familiar? After all, he'd say, I'm your friend. I'm your brother. But had they overstepped their bounds there? Because he'd become so familiar. At the transfiguration, Jesus, we'll make, we'll make a, temp, a, a tabernacle for you and Moses and Elijah. You're, you're one of the prophets, Jesus. You're like them. No. Moses and Elijah had to come to encourage him for his departure, for his death. Do not sway him from that. Robert Capon in Hunting the Divine Fox puts it this way for us. Our kind of Messiah would come down from a cross. He would carry a folding phone booth in his back pocket. He wouldn't do a stupid thing like rising from the dead. He would do a smart thing like never dying. And that, that comes into play so often where we want to be associated 
with some cause, someone, something cool. We want Jesus to be cool. Years back, it got into the, the, the images of Jesus where, man, he needed to be buff. And he needed to be, you know, cool. Tattoos, I love the Father. This is the Jesus who's cool. We want to be associated with that kind of macho guy. We'll construct him in our image. I think of that, even the, the association with, with someone's cool. Many parents, you may have experienced that with your children, where they want mom and dad to be cool. And the, 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 my, my accomplishments in the past started to take a greater grandeur. Dad, you know, you, you played in the minor leagues. Uh, no, I didn't. I played in college. Well, you, you would have if you hadn't gotten hurt. Yeah, you were, you were that good. Dad, tell us about racing against the Kenyans when you ran with... I lined up on the starting line. They were gone in, in minutes. But Dad, you could have... No, no, guys. Well, fortunately or unfortunately, now it's gotten older, there's no more images of that anymore. It's more, Dad, don't say anything stupid during the sermon. Just come on. But we want to be associated with something, someone cool. And maybe that happened a bit. For the disciples, does that happen for us as well, becoming too familiar with Jesus? Yes, yes, he's my savior, and I, I want to have feelings and be close and all that. Yes, good, but Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Duty. Duty's a bad word so often in Christian circles now. But think about that. You're on the battlefield. The colonel says, I need you to take that hill. Colonel, I, I'm not feeling the warm fuzzies today. I'm just going to sit out over here until I feel, until I have the feelings. Sometimes duty matters. Sometimes duty's good. It's not to pit them as opposites. We want the duty. We want the feeling. We want the honor. We want Jesus, Savior and Lord. He was calling them. Your expectations may be wrong. You submit to what my expectations of you are. But the disciples, they didn't get it all wrong by any means. Fortunately, they got the big one right. They gave him their lives. They gave him their lives as we see in the future that they died for him. And so brothers and sisters, so often our... In the sermon, I'm, I'm challenging us, but there's also an encouragement. There's an encouragement for the believer here that you are all in. You have given Jesus your life. You have made the most important decision. And be encouraged in that. You got that right. The disciples got that right. And amen to that. But then the crowd, the second group there. Did they get it wrong in some ways? In some ways. One of the other gospels says as Jesus is headed down into Jerusalem, he weeps. Why? They want king. They want the next king. They want a political, medical, economical, maybe not the spiritual king. Jesus, we're with you. Make Israel great again. Faith, hope, and politics. The greatest of these is politics, says George Grant. Jesus, 
Smooth everything out for us. Get these Romans out of the way. Fix everything. If you look at this picture from this uh, super tough event in the Winter Olympics, the greatest of perseverance, the curling, okay? Somebody can tell me really how that works afterwards. But, but here's the point. Um, with, with curling, oh, with parenting, here's the thought. Parenting, there used to be uh, the helicopter parents, okay, where you're all over making sure, no, Billy, bully does this to my Billy and this, da, 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 but making sure. But now then it went from the helicopter parents to the steam, you know, clear everything out, to now we have the curling parents, which makes sure that out in front of my little Johnny, no little even stuff in the way. It's got to be smooth sailing for my little precious child. Nothing can go wrong. We see that humorously in the news lately where you've got the, the parents paying off schools to get an athletic scholarship for, for their son who doesn't even play the sport or paying off Harvard in order to get in. What, you know, these people being arrested for this thing. The curling parents making sure my child needs everything perfectly. Jesus I want a smooth ride. Get the stuff out of the way for me. You're the superstar, Jesus. Help me avoid pain. Fix my wife, fix my husband, fix my job, fix my ministry. Instead of the Jesus who said, you will have the tough times. That's half of it. Expect them. Prophecies say you will have tough times. I'm not there to just smooth everything out. I'm with you. I'm with you. And that's most important. On the other side, you will have the blessed life. You have me now, eternal life now. But that's when you experience heaven later. You will go through the trials now. But that crowd didn't get it all wrong. They didn't get it all wrong. They got some things right. They heard the stories raising Lazarus. They came in awe of Jesus. They came in awe of God. Many of them, not all of them, many of them. He is the king. He is the king. But he's a king on his terms and not ours. So some of them got it right, some of them got it wrong. Just like in any crowd, any group, any church. The third group, the Pharisees. All that glitters is not gold. They were quite, quite glittery. In the Prancing Pony, Frodo said this to Aragorn in that same conversation we saw earlier. You have frightened me several times tonight, but never in the way that servants of the enemy would, or so I imagine. I think one of his spies would, well, seem fairer and feel fouler, if you understand. The Pharisees, boy, could ha they had that picture of look good, get on the inside and you see the foulness. What do you think the Pharisees would have looked like? Are they like the red guy, pitchfork, but have a hood on? You know, no. I think as much as anything, we could take out the mirror. Mm. 
That's my prop there. Get stuff up. But look in the before you be. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. I am often a Pharisee. Why? Because we seek to justify ourselves. Okay? Look at what the passage said. What did the Pharisees say? Said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. I'm going to justify myself by blaming you. It's always about the justification. If I can blame someone else, then I can feel better about myself. I want to be justified. I want to be justified. The Pharisees, they had their idols just as we have our idols. Now, what, did, what could it look like? Years back, trip from uh, Redeemer, we went to, uh, to Togo. Went to a remote village, and sure enough, in that village, they had real live little statue idols. Real live ones, but real idol things, st- stone little idols. Never seen them that clearly before. They had them. Oh, but here in America, we don't have that. Hmm, or do we? In America, our idols... Consider one, what we lean on to tell us we're okay and how we're going to organize our lives. You just ask somebody, how are you? How was your week? I'm so busy. So busy. The person who has the idol of busyness. I'm valued. I'm justified because I'm busy enough and now I'm good enough. The Pharisees, they were busy keeping their law, 601, 301, 505, better than you, better than you. Do we do the same with our busyness? I'm good because I'm doing, 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 doing this, this, that, and the other. The point is not to bash somebody for being busy. Most assuredly, there's a time where that farmer better be busy getting his crops at the right time. The accountant better be getting your taxes filed at the right time and busy with that. The doctor busy taking care of the people who need to be taken care of and busy doing it. The point is, why? Why is the person chronically busy? If the busyness doing, doing, check, check, makes you feel full, acceptable, justified, then you have the idol. Just like our friends, the Pharisees, justifying themselves in that way. But the Pharisees, they got something right. They got something right. What did they say at the end? The world has gone after him. The world has gone after him, which should have happened. Jesus, meek and mild, on the donkey, Later, you better bet what's going to happen as far as going after him. Revelation says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. The donkey put aside, the war horse will come. Jesus will come for his people and for justice on those who refused his offer. 
Brunner Ware declared this as far as our lives as Americans and so forth. Now, no one knows the plot to the epic drama in which we find ourselves, leaving us with competing small stories, but no overarching narrative that frames and explains the seemingly random experiences of life. Palm Sunday, Jesus said, Stop, look, this matters. This is the decision that matters. False expectations of who we are and who Jesus is can make things seem so random. But for the one who trusts and rests and knows, Church of the Redeemer, that you are redeemed, there is a freedom for those who believe. Our greatest expectations of Christ are met in the King of Kings. Trust and rest this week, believer. You have been redeemed. Let us pray.